Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. My name is Jim Wittevine, and I'm happy to be here with you once again. This is episode 73. And in this episode, we're going to be following up in a way to what I talked about last week in last week's episode in the camps. And I'm going to be focusing uh, specifically on what's going on at the World Economic Forum this week. And I'm going to tie that in with some other things as we get towards the end. But uh, first of all, before getting into that, I just wanted to let you know, regular listeners, watchers of the podcast, that uh, the book that I've talked about, and I've actually read a chapter as one of the previous episodes, uh, I've been working on it for the past year, and it's now uh, winging its way or or, uh, on the road towards... uh, towards our place where it's going to be ready to be shipped next week. And the book is called How in the World Did We Get Here? Uh, It's a hardcover book, about 180 pages, and it's going to be available for $15. And uh, if you want to uh, place an order for it, just go to uh, my website, dan1132.com, and you can contact me via the contact form on the website. And uh, you'll be getting your copy of the book, hopefully within uh, the next week or two. Uh, So once again, go to dan1132.com. And if you're interested, uh, there's also, uh, there will also be a discount for multiple orders and uh, uh, yeah, pass it on to friends and and let them know about it. So as I mentioned, the the book covers a lot of the the things that I talk about here on the podcast, Uh, talk about how our culture is being shaped by historical currents, what those historical currents have led to in the present day, and a final chapter on how we can respond and how we can deal with these challenges. Also, another thing that I wanted to talk about before getting into the actual topic of today's podcast is that last week I mentioned that in a a future episode, I'd be talking about positive steps that we can take uh, in dealing with technology and dealing with the uh, ever-increasing uh, surveillance of society, the lack of privacy, the way in which our uh, freedoms are are being eroded. And I reached out to someone uh, this past week about doing an interview regarding this, and uh, he gave me a positive response, but he, he's busy until February. So I'm, uh, I'm not going, just in case it doesn't pan out, I'm not going to announce who it is until we have it confirmed. But uh, I'm looking forward to that, and that's going to be a, a very interesting episode, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to talking about some positive things that we can do especially surrounding our usage of the internet and technology and uh, how we can respond to the uh, the ever-increasing uh, lack of privacy that we have and how, how important that actually is and how important it is for us to actually not just continue to go with the flow, but to uh, actively uh, fight against this uh, this trend, which has been continuing for decades, but which is steadily worsened with the development of ever more powerful techno- technology. So with that, I want to get into the actual subject of this week's podcast, and that is what's going on at the World Economic Forum and what that means for us. Now, if you follow alternative media or independent journalists, you're undoubtedly aware 
of the fact that the World Economic Forum is meeting or has been meeting in uh, in Davos, Switzerland over the past number of days. If you rely on the mainstream or the corporate news media for your information, you will likely not be aware of this, which is very interesting. I checked out CNN, I checked out CBC, I checked out local newspapers to see if there was any news on the meeting of the World Economic Forum or the decisions that are coming out of it or the discussions that are happening and crickets, nothing. But those of you who follow independent media are, are, uh, I'm sure, hearing lots about it because there's a lot to be said about it. And I'm going to be focusing on one specific issue and one particular speaker at the World Economic Forum, and that is Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain. And I found this clip on uh, a website called uh, Reclaim the Net. And if you look at Reclaim the Net, I, I highly recommend it. And I have a membership with Reclaim the Net as uh, as a, it's a great resource for, for news, for updates as to what's going on in current events when it comes to privacy issues, when it comes to tech, technology and how big tech is working. So Reclaim the Net dot org i believe it's called uh, and the video that you're about to watch that i'm going to share with you was also shared by them and it's a it's a brief uh, a snippet of a talk by tony blair at the world economic forum so i'm just going to uh, cue that up i'll insert that here and then uh, once that's finished i'll get back to you and and i also think this this issue to do with the technology and the digital infrastructure i just want to emphasize how important i think that is because in the end, you, 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 you need the data. You need to know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't been. Some of the vaccines that will come on down the line will be multiple, there'll be multiple shots. So you've got to have, for, for reasons to do with the healthcare more generally, but certainly for a, a pandemic or for, um, for, for vaccines, you've got to have a proper digital infrastructure. And many countries don't have that. In fact, most countries don't have that. So again, you've got to say, okay, who are the people that can make this happen? How do you get the right partnerships in place? So my, my view is, this is what I'm arguing with the, to, that should happen in the G, G20 particularly, I think, which is, I mean, G7 is an important forum, but the G20 is the broader forum, um, is you, you've got to work out what is it that you want to achieve in order to make sure that any future pandemic is properly handled and what are the partnerships that you're going to create in order to ensure that the answers you get are the right answers? And then you're going to have to have the mechanisms of implementation. And those mechanisms will be partly through the formal institutions that you have, like the WTO, but they'll also be through organizations like, like, like yours, which, are, which I think you know, have many advantages because they don't get landed with the same bureaucracy and, frankly, small p politics around them. So I think you know, that's what we need to do. But if you want the politicians to focus on a plan, I promise you it's got to be because they think in the next few years, not in the broad future, it's going to matter to them to have that plan. So that's Tony Blair talking about the how internationally we need to deal with the results of the, the pandemic and how we can deal with future pandemics and how the, the movers and the shakers and uh, the thought leaders and the elites of the world should be encouraging and directing 
uh, national governments to act in the face of such a tremendous threat and, and challenge. And central to his ideas is the idea of a digital ID. Digital identification, or in terms of a vaccine passport, which can be made something more applicable in, in various areas. This is, this is something that Tony Blair has been focused on for years. So this is nothing new from Tony Blair. Now, what I want to point out specifically in this episode is how this vaccine passport digital ID is being touted as a solution to problems which, in this case, I would argue don't exist, but how it's being touted as a solution to all kinds of different problems. So one thing we'll see from the Tony Blair Institute is how this digital ID is also being uh, proposed as a solution to illegal immigration. Now, Tony Blair is the president or the founder of the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. And I'm going to share with you a document that was published last year by the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. And so here it is up on the screen for those of you who are on Rumble. It's called Fixing the Asylum System, a Workable Plan. Uh, and the executive, I'll just very briefly go over the executive summary. Since 2020, there has been a sharp increase in the number of people trying to reach the UK by crossing the English Channel in small boats, driving up the volume of asylum applications to Britain, now at their highest level since 2003. The exceptionally dangerous nature of these journeys was underscored in November 2021, when 27 people tragically died while attempting a crossing, leading to a series of policy pledges from the government designed to demonstrate a plan for controlling the border. This included the highly contentious policy of flying some asylum seekers to Rwanda, regardless of whether they had a valid claim to deter others from seeking to arrive in Britain. So what do we do with this problem? This is the, uh, the problem that the Tony Blair Institute has set before itself as something that it should be facing. And I'm going to not go through the entire document because it's lengthy, but I'm going to focus on the specific issue at question, which we can find on page 23 of the document, I believe. talks about the way forward. What can we do? Well, we can deter asylum seekers from seeking to arrive outside managed routes. Uh, we can get the basics right on asylum processing. We can deal with the demand side of irregular migration with a system of di digital ID verification for all citizens. Now, I'm going to get into more detail on this, so I'm going to start with the first paragraph here. The UK is an attractive destination, partly because parts of our labor market are under-regulated, which means it is easier to work in the informal economy and therefore disappear off the radar than in countries where you must prove your right to work and reside. 
Common sense would suggest that this continues to represent a significant pull factor for those seeking to attempt dangerous journeys to the UK. We recommend that the government take, takes advantage of new technologies to introduce a digital identity verification system. This would combine some aspects of a traditional physical identity card with the functionality to digitally authenticate users with employers and government services and issue digital signatures on necessary documents. To work and or access benefits, individuals would be required to produce a claim that they have a legal right to reside digitally signed by a recognized authority. To obtain such a claim, individuals would first need to establish their status with a recognized authority, likely to be a government department, other public sector body, or designated partner, by generating their own public or private key pair, and by providing their passport or equivalent documentation for verification. In return, they would receive one or more digitally signed claims that would be unique to them and credible when shared with third parties. While such a system, the document continues, would represent a shift from the status quo, it is less of a leap in a world where citizens are increasingly used to verifying their status, particularly post-pandemic, with millions having already been required to demonstrate proof of vaccination in order to travel. In conclusion, the public are ahead of the political class on the issue of asylum. They understand that the choice facing Britain is not whether or not people will seek to come, but whether the flow of asylum seekers will be unmanaged, illegal, and dangerous, or managed, coordinated, and legal. They do not want to be forced to choose between the principles of control and compassion, but want a workable solution that balances both. It is time our politicians caught up. So this is what the public wants. The public wants, in, in this particular issue, uh, to uh, coordinate, control, uh, manage the, uh, the entry of asylum seekers in, into Great Britain. And central to this, and, and, and what will actually make this workable, is a system of digital identification which has, as the Blair Institute points out, become something that has, has become more acceptable given what has happened during the so-called pandemic over the past several years with these systems of uh, vaccine passports or health passports, something that has also been recommended by the G20 meeting uh, recent in recent months, as uh, Tony Blair also referred to in his in his talk about the importance of the G20 and the G7, but but more importantly the G20 with a a broader membership base. These organizations don't have, uh, and this is this is something that detractors often point out. They don't have decision making capacity, but when you see these ideas being proposed by, in meetings like the G20, the G7, in meetings like uh, meetings of the World Economic Forum, and also, as we'll see, the World Trade Organization, you see that, that the, as, I, as I've called them, the, the movers and the shakers, the ones who are behind uh, a lot of the policy making in national governments, who have those contacts, those deep contacts, who have, uh, as uh, Klaus Schwab has said, penetrated the cabinets of various countries. We see that despite these organizations not having uh, binding decision-making powers, they do 
exert a very heavy influence over the governments of nation states throughout the world. And so this digital ID being touted as the the solution for uh, future pandemics, also being touted for uh, to to help with the asylum seeking uh, illegal immigration problem in Great Britain, is also being touted as a means by which trade, international trade, can be regulated and monitored and become more efficient and more, uh, yeah, more beneficial, between quotation marks, for the entire world. And that leads me to another document. And this document was published by uh, the World Trade Organization in conjunction with, in partnership with the World Economic Forum. And the title of the document, which if you're watching on Rumble, you see on your screen, is The Promise of Trade Tech, Policy Approaches to Harness Trade Digitalization. Once again, I'm not going to go through the entire document. Again, it's, it's lengthy. But I'm going to just read a little bit from the introduction, the foreword. Uh, and then I'm going to go to the, the, the part which speaks specifically about digital identification. So in the foreword, it says, technology has always propelled trade. From the invention of the steam engine and steamship in the 1700s, the popularization of the standard shipping container in the 1950s, and the rise of the internet in the 1990s, technology has over the centuries profoundly changed the way we trade. Today, emerging technologies and digitalization are changing trade at a speed much faster than before, leading to both opportunities and challenges. Again, we hear these familiar words. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown that digital trade and commerce has become a staple for survival for small and medium-sized enterprises all over the world, while the application of autonomous technologies from robotics to artificial intelligence, have contributed to the operation of ports and warehouses with minimal staffing during lockdowns. According to a World Economic Forum business survey, the adoption <coughs> excuse me, the adoption of trade tech, the set of technologies that enables global trade to become more efficient, inclusive, and sustainable. There are those buzzwords, efficiency, inclusivity, and sustainability has helped to ease supply chain bottlenecks across different industries. As trade tech adoption is moving fast and is largely driven by the private sector, there is an urgent need for trade policymaking to keep pace. For trade to work for all, trade tech adoption must happen in the most efficient and inclusive manner across the globe and for all members of society. Again, efficiency and inclusivity. Now, if you, if you think about that word inclusive, it, in, in, in today's uh, uh, context, that, that word inclusivity, it, it sounds so positive, where everyone's included, where, where all of the stakeholders, to use another one of the buzzwords, all of the stakeholders have a place in the system. But inclusivity is not about including those who are marginalized it's not about uh, including uh, those who are discriminated against. 
Really, what inclusivity in this context means is that you simply cannot escape from it. It's inclusive in the sense that everyone must be included. So you need to watch these buzzwords, inclusivity, sustainability, efficiency, and public-private partnerships, which is another word for fascism. All of these buzzwords being used to promote a certain way of doing things. So to continue with the forward, the benefits of trade tech on efficiency and sustainability are highly promising. Again, sustainable development being another buzzword. However, uneven deployment due to regulatory fragmentation could result in unintended consequences of unequal growth, threats to cybersecurity, and a growing trend in techno-nationalism. And again, if you follow the alternative media, if you follow independent journalists, you know about the discussions that have been happening over the past couple of years about cybersecurity and the various ways and the, the meetings that have happened about this upcoming threat of a possible cyber, cyber terrorism attack, which is something that we're being prepared for. Continuing, leveraging technologies for trade requires more than technological innovation. The major challenge might actually be international policy coordination and coherence. All right, so what does that mean? International policy coordination and coherence. Once again, with inclusivity, this is another buzzword where we need to coordinate, where we need to work together, where we need an overarching body which will govern all of these things so that we're not each on our own page as a, uh, as a nation where we all need to be on the same page, we all need to be working together, and we all need to be working together under a single authority. The right ecosystem, continuing, needs to be in place to drive global adoption and scalability. Trade agreements can play a key role in this regard. Recent trade agreements and plurilateral initiatives have started to explore the interplay between technology and trade. Yet, further input and analysis are needed on issues such as electronic transferable records, automated contracts, digital tokens, the interoperability of data models, and the digital identity of legal and physical persons and of physical and digital goods. So we need to have a digital ID not just for uh, human beings, but we need to have it for things. We need to have it for the things that we're transporting, the things that we're producing. We also see this in even in the world of agriculture where uh, movements are being made to have farmers have a digital ID for all of their animals so that that also can be tracked from the birth of the animal to uh, its consumption as meat for as long as that's permitted. And then concluding the forward, this joint World Economic Forum and World Trade Organization publication aims to shed light in this area, providing public, private, and civil societies inputs on the building blocks for trade tech policy adoption, the five G's of trade tech. This publication builds on the Trade for Tomorrow call to action put forward by both organizations last year, to bring trade to a new speed for all. Then there's an executive summary, but I'm going to skip over all of this and I'm going to... Oh, 
scroll down to this section, section three, global digital identity. So part one is the, uh, or A is digital identity of natural and legal persons, and B is digital identity of physical and digital objects. So scrolling down, identity and trust lie at the core of each trade interaction. As global value chains become increasingly digital, organizations need to ensure that they can trust the digital identity of legal and physical persons or products they deal with and can efficiently link that digital identity with a real organization, specific product, or device. So the process, this process of dynamically verifying counterparts is a critical step in onboarding suppliers and establishing trust in trade. The global nature of value chains requires a global approach to digital identities to avoid creating digital identity silos. And this, this expression, digital identity silos, is a key expression in this document and in the thinking of these, uh, these would-be influencers of, uh, of national policies. What is a digital identity silo. And it's it's interesting that in this document, two examples are mentioned uh, of digital identity silos, one in Ontario and another one in British Columbia. Uh, but speaking of a silo, a silo is obviously a, a, a tall, uh, you know, a typical traditional silo, a, a tall, narrow building that stores uh, grain or uh, stores animal feed or what have you. Uh, but it doesn't have any connection outside of itself. So you have a silo here, you have a silo here, uh, and these silos are not touching each other, they're not communicating with each other. So it's not efficient. It's not inclusive. It's not, it, it's not tied to the rest of the world. So what we need, according to the World Trade Organization, according to the World Economic Forum, uh, is an approach, a global approach to digital identities. In, in other words, uh, Canadian digital identity must be uh, interchangeable with uh, an American digital identity, with a Brazilian digital identity, with a Dutch digital identity, with a, a Turkish digital identity. We all need to be uh, using the same framework. And as we saw last week with the, the digital identity, the biometrics, the way all of these technologies are being used in China, with the, uh, the development and support of American big tech companies, China really is serving as the model for all of this. And that's important to point out. And it's important for us to understand. This is not an innocuous movement. This is not something where we can say, oh, well, you know, we already have uh, digital IDs in so many ways. We have our, our passports and we have our, uh, our driver's license and we, and we have all of these things. Well, yes, we do. And, and we've already stepped way too far into this area. But to say, well, we already have all of these things. Therefore, why worry about this one universal digital ID? Why, why be concerned about it? Well, to say that is, uh, <laughs> is a, it's a logical fallacy. Because it's to say, well, we, we, uh, we didn't do our due diligence with these previous things, so why should we do our due dil diligence with these upcoming developments? Which doesn't make any sense at all. So continuing on here in the document, 
accessing, talking about digital identity of natural and legal persons, accessing reliable information in order to verify a party's identity is a critical step for a wide range of international trade transactions and processes, including inter alia contract formation, exchange of data and e-documents, onboarding of new suppliers and partners, social and environmental compliance, important as well, social and environmental compliance. Well, what does that mean? Social compliance. Hmm. Is the individual compliant with the latest social uh, movements, with the latest social issues, the social issues of the day? Is, is that person compliant environmentally? Know your customer processes, anti-money laundering processes. And this is another, another area which is it's constantly emphasized. Why all this control? Well, it's because of the dangers of money laundering, organized crime, the funding of international terrorism, all of these things. That, therefore, we need to have uh, a strict watch and strict control over international transfers because of all these things. Anybody who, who works in an international charity knows about these things. Counter-terrorist financing, ultimate beneficial owner processes, whatever that means, and customs clearance. Both public and industry actors have developed digital identity systems for entities to help to identify the supply chain actors involved and gain insights into from whom the data message has originated. However, these systems are often sector-specific, e.g. customs, financial companies, business registration. And it continues speaking about digital ID and the need for one unified system. Then going on to part B, digital identity of physical and digital objects. Traceability is the ability to identify and trace the history, distribution, location, and use of containers, consignments, shipments, and products from end to end. It enhances planning and risk management, and the greater transparency that this blip brings to supply chain's operations can play a key role in mitigating the impact of supply chain disruptions. Ta-da! Here we go again, such as those experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic. Traceability of sustainability credentials, sustainability, there's that buzzword again, can also provide greater insight into the environmental footprint and social impacts of final and intermediate goods in global value chains. Increasingly, Governments require companies to ensure that their products be produced according to minimum standards. Okay, so they mentioned two examples here, legally logged timber, legal employment. There are also other standards which they don't mention. And these are the kind of standards that the, the gigantic companies that control a large amount of international trade, like BlackRock, uh, those uh, investment funds, these are the kinds of, uh, of policies that they are enforcing. Governments are not enforcing that, but these companies are enforcing that. And then uh, they say governments may deny the entry of goods which fail to meet requirements. I could continue on here, but I think, uh, I think you get the point. And there's no need to, uh, to beat a dead horse here. So... Basically, just, just in conclusion, like what, what do we see here? Well, well, just going back to the beginning of this episode, what, what Tony Blair was saying 
at uh, at the World Economic Forum meeting, encouraging and, and, and talking about the necessity of having a digital ID for pandemic purposes. Then going back to what his, uh, his institute had said previously about the necessity of having a digital ID for, to control immigration. So there, there again, it's the, it's the cure for, for that problem as well. Then going back to when Tony Blair was actually prime minister of Britain, he faced a lot of pushback for this at the time. He was also at that time pushing for a digital ID. And then connecting that in with the World Trade Organization and the World Economic Forum and their push for a digital ID to just just make international trade more inclusive and more sustainable and more efficient. So digital ID, digital ID, digital ID. Over the past few years, we've seen that digital ID and the COVID-19 so-called pandemic have been closely tied. And from the beginning of the year 2020, some people who were branded as uh, strange thinkers, conspiracy theorists, of course, that, that word comes back again, uh, people who, who, who are, are, are seeing the, 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 you know, uh, an evil entity behind every bush, were saying this is going to lead to a push to digital ID, to an international digital ID tied with social credit scores, tied with the, uh, the ESG goals, the economic, social, and, and uh, governance goals, which are, uh, are being pushed by these uh, international mega corporations like BlackRock and, and by governments as well, which we see in our banking industry, which we see in a lot of big business these kind of goals, and I'll talk more about ESG in, in a future episode for sure. Uh, and, and so people were saying this, uh, you know, three years ago, and uh, to, the, uh, <laughs> to the amusement of some who thought themselves smarter than that to not be taken in by such foolishness, or the tie between the, uh, the pandemic and uh, issues such as climate change, which we've seen again come true. So uh, we've seen these, these, uh, these connections as people have been talking about them for three years. We see, as we see more and more of these things happening, we see these things coming to fruition. So, so what, does that, what does that mean for us? And, and, and this ties in with uh, something that a listener to, uh, to the podcast was talking to me about uh, in, in, or in the last week. It also ties in with a podcast that was uh, uh, published or, or uh, released in the past week with Dr. Charles Hoffa, a British Columbia uh, doctor, who was talking about the future of the church and how we deal with that. Well, what, what, is that, what does that have to do with this, with digital ID and all this stuff? Well, when we think about how we as churches, how, how the Christian church in general in the West responded to what happened during the COVID-19 era, we need, to, we need to consider how we responded. We need to think about the, uh, the mistakes that were made, the errors that were made. We need to think about the fact that this is not something that's over. 
what we want to do, and a, a natural tendency is, is to put it, put it in the past. Just put it behind us. So uh, it's over. There's no more lockdowns. There's no more uh, closing of churches. There's no more of any of these things happening. COVID-19 is a, is a, a bad memory something that we had to put up with for a couple of years, but now uh, it's over. We move into, move on into the future. But the fact is we need to wake up to understand that it is not over. Really, it appears that what we experienced during the COVID-19 years, when it, you know the, the when COVID-19 obviously is still going on, I, as I was looking at the CBC website, I saw that they still have a section for COVID-19 and they're still reporting on hospitalizations and numbers and everything else. And, and Canada's top doctor is uh, again encouraging uh, boosters and, and uh, <laughs> more, more vaccinations. So it just it continues on and on and on. So to say that this was something that we don't we don't have to deal with. Well, you know, we we had this problem where we had to shut down the churches, but you know, it's not going to happen again. This was just it was a it was something it was a we were living in unprecedented times. And so we had to deal with these things and we had to kind of fly by the seat of our pants. We had to develop our thinking on these issues as we were going along. Uh, and it it caught us by surprise how how uh, how to deal with it. Well, if we think that this is not going to happen again or that it is not continuing to happen or that these trends are not going to continue, we have to do more thinking about this. Because as we see, if you look beyond CBC, CNN, Global, if you look beyond the corporate media, if you have your eyes and ears to the ground and you see not 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 hidden things but things that are happening openly and publicly which may not be reported on by the mainstream media but which are definitely happening we know that we need to be on our guard and we need to be prepared for what how are we going to respond during the next lockdown how are we going to respond when uh, climate lockdowns happen? How are we going to respond when, uh, as was proposed in Britain, when uh, Sunday uh, travel by car is no longer permitted? <laughs> this was an actual proposition. Uh, how are Christians going to respond when worship is once again shut down because we're not allowed to gather in large groups? These are things that we need to deal with. We can't just push it under uh, push it to the side, or we can't just uh, put it under the rug and say, well, that's done with. We don't have to deal with it. Let's let bygones be, be bygones. Let's not cause division. Let's not cause more strife because we know people had uh, varying views and varying understandings. No, well, we need to deal with these things because they're not isolated occurrences. We know they're not chance occurrences, either in the the, the spiritual sense or in the, 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 this worldly sense, they're not chance occurrences. And we know, uh, and, and if you have your eyes open and you have, if you have uh, understanding and if you've, you've, you've done some uh, looking into these things, you can see that these are trends which are concerning. These are trends which should awaken uh, a certain amount of, uh, uh, yeah, it should awaken within us 
a, a, a very deep concern about what's happening in this world and the should give us the impetus to, as church, consider and think about and plan for and and evaluate what we did in the past. And if we erred, we need to recognize that. We need to confess that we have erred, that we have failed. Uh, and then we need to make a firm plan for the future. So that's where this, this whole issue of digital IDs at the World Economic Forum and, and the, the Tony Blair Institute and the World Trade Organization and uh, uh, that entire movement uh, fits in with the COVID-19 pandemic, so-called pandemic, and uh, how that has impacted the church and, and, and what it means for us going into the future. So, those are those are some of the the connections that I just, I just wanted to draw those those connections and and uh, and and encourage all of us to to really consider this to to think about okay well how what are we going to do moving forward are we going to meet and are we going to discuss what these last three years were uh, are we going to debate perhaps our response are we going to think about and consider and and plan for the future so that we are not caught unawares again. So we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We need to not be uh, ingenuous or naive. These are, these are important things for us as a church. We need to understand that, that in all of these things, you know, perhaps the individuals that are involved are not uh, deliberately meaning to attack the church or to attack God's kingdom, but we know who's behind the movements in the world. And we know who uh, the ruler of this world is, as, as Scripture says, the prince of the power of the air, the father of lies. And so we need to recognize that. We need to recognize those movements, and we need to be prepared. So that's, uh, I'm just going, going to conclude there. And, uh, and I hope that, that this has helped you to think about these issues in, in, in that, that broader perspective. And as I always say, in the words of Daniel 11.32, that this helps us to stand firm and to take action. So until next time, may God bless you. May God bless us as his people. And may he equip us by all means to stand firm, to be people who know our God, and to stand firm and to take action.